Hey, y'all, and welcome to Sign of the Crime. This is Remy Ramirez. This is Q McGrath. We are sisters. We are family. And uh, today we are going to cover Jody Arias. But why are, you la- why are you laughing? Why did you announce that we are sisters? <laughs> I think it's cute that we're sisters. It is cute. That's true. You know? Okay, I'll, I'll give you that. I just thought there was going to be we're going somewhere with it. I was like, no, nope. oh, well, all right. Nope. Full stop. We are sisters and period. Okay. Uh, full sisters turns out. It's true. You know? yeah. yeah. We grew up together. Tell me uh, the most embarrassing story you have about me. And I'll say the most embarrassing story I have about you. It's cute. The embarrassing story I have about you. I don't, I mean, I can't think of like embarrassing stories about Okay, you. great. I'll tell my story. <laughs> okay. All right. So I feel like this was a setup, but okay. <laughs> no, just one time when we were little, um, my, our mom had to work really late and, oh, you're going to tell the peace story, aren't you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and one time we, we would stay up and watch Nick at night, which for you youngsters, Nickelodeon is Nick, Nickelodeon is still around, right? It's like a kid's channel. It's gotta be. Yeah. So Nick at night would show all these reruns of old shows from the fifties. Cause this was the eighties. And we would drink black tea because we're fucking crazy and, and stay up late and jump on the couch, like jump all over the fucking couch watching Nick and Night. Anyway, Quintana drank all this tea and then fell asleep. And I was just sitting there watching Nick at Night. It's probably one in the morning. And Quintana just sleepwalks over to the kitchen, pees on the kitchen floor in her sleep, and then walks back to the living room and goes back to sleep. Yeah. <laughs> Now you can think for next time. I was going to say, I really feel like you had this one in the barrel and that's not really fair because you did not give me the opportunity to reflect on this. I don't need time to reflect. That's my go-to for you. You're the most embarrassing story. Yeah. It's cute though. But I feel like the embarrassing stories I have about you are not cute and you will get mad at me if I don't love (laughs) me nationally syndicated podcast <laughs> there was the time that i was tap dancing in front of 500 people for my recital and my fucking outfit undid in the back it was a halter like sailor one oh, piece no. and my and it just came flying yeah i don't think you were there but it came flying down it was just tits out in front of how old were you 15 oh no yeah oh, yeah no. not cute <laughs> That happened to me in my very first scene in my acting class with Michael too. I had to change really fast and a boob fell out. And I was like, oh, fuck, cool. <laughs> now all these people have seen me naked. All right. That's probably why Michael went on to marry you. Um, no, he was pretty clear that he went on to marry me because of my ass. Ah, well, if it's not a boob, it's a butt. Yeah, it's yeah. He's he's not a boob man. I'm not saying he doesn't like them. I mean, he's human. Humans like boobs. Uh, but he was an ass man. Actually, he said that after that happened, he was like, "Fuck, I can't really approach her because then she's just gonna think that it's because her tit fell out." Yeah, I was like, also maybe your girlfriend. But uh, yeah, sure, okay, tits. Yeah, you're, yeah. Maybe think about the fact. Maybe think about the fact that you have a girlfriend. Okay, no, not an issue. Got it. Moving on. Uh, but you want to talk about somebody who also had some fucking issues? Yes. Tell me everything about her. Okay. So let's go back in time. So it is June 9th, two thousand. Wait. Stop. Stop. Right now, because I have to tell people, and I keep fucking forgetting every single time that we have an Insta account. <laughs> oh, right. 
I always forget. It is sign of the crime pod. Okay, continue. Okay. Um, speaking of crime. Yeah. Uh, and this one will be on it soon. Um, okay, so it's June 9th, 2008, and Marie Mimi Hall is supposed to be going to Cancun with her friend, Travis Alexander, the next day, but she hasn't heard from him in almost a week. So she reaches out to a mutual friend who calls his roommates and, oh, sometimes I write things when my children are yelling at me and I'm like, the fuck does that say? Okay. So also this is a new development. The L key on my computer, I'm buying a new computer tomorrow. Uh, The L key on my computer stopped working. So sometimes I just have to decipher what this is supposed to mean. Wow. No idea what that says. No, I'm like, that's interesting. Okay. So what they say doesn't make her feel any better. So Travis's roommates haven't seen him either, but they're not worried because they believed he's in Mexico with Mimi. So once they find out that he is not in fact in Mexico, his friends begin to gather and they try to plot out when they last saw him. And they realize that no one has seen him since June 4th. So Travis Mm -hmm. owns the condo that he shares with his roommates and he lives in the master suite, which is locked. So his roommates hunt down a key to start their search for Travis in his room. And unfortunately that's where the search both begins and ends. After finding a key to Travis's bedroom, the group enter, well, not the group, a couple of, of dudes enter. And then I, I need to pause here and mention that they had noticed a smell Oh God! and they assumed it was like dishes or the dog, but it wasn't. Um, they find large pools of blood in the hallway, the master bedroom, and they find his body in the shower and the state of the body indicates that he has been dead for some time. So his friends are in a state of shock and confusion. So they call the police. Uh, in the 911 call, the dispatcher asks whether Travis had been suicidal or if anyone was angry enough to hurt him. And this is when his friends mention an ex girlfriend named Jody Arias. Both his friends and his roommates confirm to the police that Jody should be considered a possible suspect, stating that Travis had told them that she had been stalking him, accessing his Facebook account sneaking into his house through the doggy door and had slashed his car's tires. Mm. So, you know, the police are, of course, interested in pursuing that lead even more so because in their search of the incredibly gory crime scene, they make an odd discovery in the washing machine. Along with a set of freshly laundered towels, they find a digital camera that has been run through the wash cycle, but, and it fucked up the camera. The camera won't turn on, but as People who had like us, we know because back in the day, our phones didn't take pictures and you had to use a fucking camera. There is a card that you could use that had all of your images on it and they pop that thing out and it still contains the images. It's not damaged. So many of these images are, to put it euphemistically, sexually charged. Sex, (laughs) sex on sex on the camera. They show a naked traffic. Travis Alexander, as well as a naked woman, the police easily identify as Jody Arias. And let's just say the pictures definitely showcase a bottle of lube, which, you know, like if I'm a dude, I don't want a picture because it just feels like it's giving, I can't get a girl wet, but that's just me. Um, so then we get some naked shower photos, the classics, and then we get a grainy photo of Travis's bloody body on his bathroom floor next to a pic of a woman's foot wearing a pair of striped gym pants, followed by a bunch of unclear but unmistakable pictures of Travis's very dead body, as well as a bloody crime scene. So these pics feel 
pretty definitive, along with the info that they're getting from Travis's friends that Jody is an ex-girlfriend who would just not get with the program. So the account of stalking was backed up by Marie Hall, who had dated Travis briefly and in whom he had confided about his issues with his ex. He never said her name, but all his friends are saying that would be Jody. So right. before they even have time to call Jody, she reaches out to them to offer any. She's like, hello, I would love, I would love some attention. Yeah. And the thing about this is that it's like, I think that's weird, but that's a thing that sometimes these people do. They, you know, maybe to get ahead, to find out what's going on with the investigate. I don't know. But anyway, so to make it seem like they're innocent, like, oh, a a guilty person wouldn't have called. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Well, but, you know, naked, naked pictures. So, Um, yeah. (laughs) So she probably she was like, she was like my genius plan to put the digital camera in the (laughs) honestly. And I know we talked about that a lot this week. I I don't think this could have been avoided anyway. There was other evidence that was that showed that she was there. But Jesus fucking Christ, if you take pictures with a man, a man that you're about, like, take the fucking camera, take the camera, take the camera, take the camera. What the fuck? I don't. This is it's one one. You know what I'm saying? This is elementary, yeah. my dear Watson. So so she reaches out to offer any help she could in bringing her dear friend Travis's killer to justice. And this is a surprising development, but the cops are happy to have a chance to talk with her. And they ask her if she'll come in to have a chat with them. She agrees. And their first meeting is not particularly noteworthy other than the fact that the police know that she's full of every kind of shit. And they are just trying to tie her to a story with which they can nail her. She gives them a whole song and dance about going on a road trip from Wairika, where she lives to see a dude in Nevada claiming that she drove down to Pasadena, got lost somehow trying to get on the 15, managed to get lost somewhere in the neighborhood of 24-ish hours, most of which she claims she spent sleeping in her car, as one does, uh, before she pops up again in Nevada, where eventually she lands at this guy's house. So she hangs out there for a few days, acts perfectly normal. She's like, this is foolproof. Yeah, this explanation, (laughs) no holes in it at all. So she does have a few cuts on her hands that she says she got bartending. The cops listen to her story and they let her go, but not for long. So they bring her back in a few days later, and that's when they drop the other shoe. They do not believe her story. They know she was there. They have pictures of her in flagrante delecto, shall we say. Now, normal people. (laughs) What the fuck does that? It's from Clue. Yeah, but what does it mean? I think it means in a compromising position. Okay. So like normal people, us, we take that moment to ask for a lawyer, you know, or maybe even like tearfully confess to try and garner some sympathy. But Jody Arias's first instinct is to straight up deny everything. And I mean, everything like home bitch is insisting she wasn't there. She's looking at naked pictures of herself, full frontal, including her face saying, it looks like me, which is, you know. Yeah. So she won't admit to anything because it is you. you. Turns out you look like yourself. So they tell her she's (laughs) under arrest, at which point she asks if she can clean up before she's led to take her mud shot, which in case you're wondering, is not allowed. So, well, she also was like, I know this is going to reveal how shallow I am. Like, like, uh, don't say it out loud. Yeah. Again, I get the feeling like she thinks if she gets ahead of it, it makes her seem not that way, but we're all like, well, you murdered someone. So this, the shallow part, isn't like the most concerning. Um, yeah. 
So she proceeds to spend the next half hour or so self-soothing or some shit by singing Silent Night to herself and then assuming a yoga headstand against the wall, you know, to each their own. But that was weird. So she's arrested and booked. And the next day, the police send a female officer in to talk to Jody to see if they can get her to crack. And she absolutely shuts down. She won't speak at all. And eventually she asked to speak to the male investigator she had spoken to the night before. The police oblige. And that's when we get what has come to be called the ninja story. So Jody now claims that she was in the bathroom with Travis when two people, a man and a woman, all dressed in black, show up and attack Travis. Jody reports that Travis tells her to run for help and she tries, but the ninjas stop her. They take her wallet, pull out her license. There's a back and forth between the two ninjas about whether or not they're going to kill her. And the male ninja talks the female ninja out of it, basically. And it's just like, that's not what we're here for. But they pull out her license. So they tell her they now know her name and her address and that she needs to go, but she can never tell anyone what happened or they will find her and kill her, which is exactly whole family. Yeah. Because that's how ninjas work. That's just classic ninja. You know, they hunt you down. They brutally kill their intended victim, (laughs) but they only traumatize and threaten innocent bystanders. That is just their MO, no collateral damage. It's the ninja way. Were they turtles also? I, Was it like Donatello? Honestly, at that point, if I were a police officer, <laughs> I might've asked that. So she tearfully relates this story to the cops, confessing that after the ninjas told her they weren't there for her, she quote, ran like a little bitch. The detective to his credit lets her get it all out. And then he gently tells her that her story makes not a stitch of sense and is definitely bullshit to which she essentially says it's better if the family hears this story, which is a belief she took to the bank because she actually told that story to inside edition in a jailhouse interview that lives on in infamy to this day. She also said during this interview, I know I am innocent. God knows I am innocent. Travis knows I'm innocent and no jury can convict me. Not too long after that, her lawyers announced that she would be pleading guilty by means of self-defense So it seems like God told Jody to keep her name out of that whole mess. So her lawyers, by the way, not psyched about that interview because it turns out it's a lot easier to defend someone if they shut the fuck up, which was one of the things that Jody refused to do. (laughs) So before we talk about the trial, let's just discuss Jody a little bit. She'd just pop out into the ether, a complete psycho, which to be clear, I'm not, I'm not using that in like the technical sense. I don't think that's her diagnosis, but I mean, it's not far off the mark. So She was born and raised in Salinas, California, and actually she seemed to have like a fairly normal upbringing. Uh, She was raised by both parents along with her siblings in close contact with her grandparents, no huge red flags. She would later claim that she had been abused by both her parents, like violently abused, but there's no proof of that. And it's hard to know what to do with those statements because she lies a lot. So Mm. in her teen years, Jody's parents moved up north to Wairika, California, which was apparently pretty traumatic for her. She felt that she didn't fit in. She missed her friends, normal teenage stuff. Uh, She was angry with her parents. She blamed them for the move, also normal. And in a fit of teenage rebellion, she began smoking weed, also normal in my opinion. Yeah, so far this just sounds like every teenager I know. Well, yeah, so it got a little weird when as an eighth grader, she began growing and selling weed in like this eighth grade juvenile crime syndicate with some classmates. I mean- if I was, yeah, if I was a betting woman, I put money on her, at least partially doing it to gain acceptance with groups of friends she'd finally made because she seemed to have some trouble bonding to humans, uh, which doesn't surprise me at all. But it got even weirder. Like, yeah, that's problematic. But like, whatever. Eighth graders are stupid. They do stupid shit. Sure. Like, whatever. Yeah. Okay. Here, here we go, though. Her 
parents found one of these pot plants she was growing on the roof of their house and they turned her into the cops. And I'm assuming that they did that to show her like how serious this was, which given the political climate around weed right now makes me laugh. But honestly, in my world, snitches get stitches, bitch. And that wouldn't have had the effect that they wanted it to have on me. And it it didn't on Jody. (laughs) That did not work. Uh, Both report, both her parents report from that point on that she would tell them nothing, did not trust them and Mm -hmm. would not confide in them about her personal life at all, which might make some of her story more believable later. We'll get into that. So Jody was a dedicated journal writer. She wrote down a lot of her thoughts and hopes and dreams, documenting a lot of her feelings about her lovers, including Travis Alexander, which would come back to haunt her later. But she did seem to be really fervent about finding a partner. She dated a lot. Um, She was very attractive and she had a lot of energy. Dudes were into her. So friends reported that she had a tendency to kind of disappear into her relationships. And then she would reemerge as someone that whoever she was dating at the time would be into. Um, this, this pretty accurately describes what happened when Jody met Travis in Las Vegas at a multi-level marketing business seminar Travis was a part of in 2006. So he's immediately interested in this pretty vivacious young woman. And Jody was equally infatuated and, uh, immediately agrees to attend like a, a party or something they had at this event as his date, even though she had a long-term boyfriend at home. So mm-hmm. when Jody, yeah. yeah. When Jody returned from this trip, she broke up with her boyfriend of four years and threw herself into pursuing Travis up to and including converting to Travis's religion, which was Mormonism. So for his part, Travis actually suffered a traumatic childhood. His parents were both drug addicts who were neglectful and abusive to him and his siblings. So at the age of 10, he went to live with his grandparents where he thrived. Um, He also discovered Mormonism as his grandparents were devoted followers, and that became a really significant part of his life. By 2006, he was active in the Mormon church, doing well in his career as a motivational speaker and leader in prepaid legal, the MLM, both he and Jody were involved in. And supposedly he was on the lookout for a life partner. And Jody was determined to be that partner. Like I said, she Mm -hmm. converted to Mormonism. She met all his friends. She expressed interest in Travis's hobbies. She did her best to present herself as marriage material, but the major mistake she made was making herself available sexually. So, which by the way, like it should not be, it shouldn't be. It's a weird okay. catch 22 to talk about. We are sex positive people. Uh, I personally don't feel yeah. like it's a mistake to have premarital sex. In fact, I'm, I'm very much for it. Please make sure you're sexually compatible before you marry someone for fuck's sake. I say this with all the love, get fucked, truly, literally get fucked before you marry someone. (laughs) I mean, do that. Uh, Yeah, it's important. Um, But the fact of the matter is that Travis Alexander was Mormon and Mormons have a law of chastity that requires no premarital sex. So even though there is absolutely nothing morally wrong with Jody fucking Travis, the fact that she did so lowered her value in Travis's eyes. I'm sorry, let's tee out just for one feminist rage moment. Guess what, Travis? You also fucked. Yeah. Yeah. It should have lowered his own value. Well, we're going to get into all that. We're going to get into all that. Um, So he was looking for this good Mormon girl to help him earn his place in the celestial kingdom and get his own planet or whatever the fuck. And they were having a lot of sex, like a lot. Um, By her own admission, Jody is a woman who took a lot of pride in her physical appearance. And it seemed that she was leaning hard on her physical attributes to keep Travis tethered to her, which... I honestly think it's pretty normal for a 20 something woman, particularly one with self-esteem problems. Sure. And if we're being honest, that was like 
most of us hat tip to the beauty standards of the early 2000s. So yeah, I mean, they were fucking all the time, but instead of that increasing their bond the way Jody wanted it to, that actually lessened her chances of ending up being Mrs. Jody Alexander, which was very frustrating to her. Because? Because patriarchy. Yeah, because patriarchy. Because of the fucking patriarchy. It just never ends. Um, and if you if you watch, well, well, we'll talk about this later. Okay, so she did what a lot of 26-year-olds do in this situation, which is she showed her frustration through displays of jealousy. So she would check his phone, read his email, follow him around everywhere, including the bathroom. So it was strange. It was definitely strange. And his friends noticed it finally came to a head when a couple of his friends pulled him aside one night to have a private discussion with him about her obsessive behavior. And one of them realized she was listening at the door to their conversation, which Uh, is confirmed when Travis opens the door, revealing Jody standing outside. So yeah, it's embarrassing. Their relationship dissolved after that. And then she did something that I'm willing to bet all of her friends tried to talk her out of. She moved to Mesa, Arizona, where Travis lived post breakup. Cool. That's yeah, that's uh, that's not a red flag. This is when the stalking that Travis had complained about occurred, which included lots of tearful phone calls and nonstop text messages. Travis's car was keyed a couple of times. Apparently he was spied on while he went out with other women and his dates were harassed. And his friends confirmed that Jody would enter Travis's house through the doggy door, take her clothes off and crawl into his bed. But honey, when Travis discovered her in his bed, he would fuck her, which I'm going to say probably sent her some mixed messages. So it also didn't help that he sent her texts like, I am at a nightclub right now. And it has helped me come to the conclusion that you are one of the prettiest girls on the planet, as well as asking her to send naughty pics many months after their breakup. They also went on out-of-state trips together, visiting Oklahoma and Texas in March of 2008. Like this is after their breakup. So this is this kind of back and forth went on for quite a while until Jody seems to realize that her attempts to bring Travis back to her are not panning out the way she wants them to. So in April of 2008, she moves back to California, which Travis's friends confirmed was a huge relief for him. The separation didn't last very long, though, because by June 2nd of 2008, Jody is packing up her car for a road trip, ostensibly to see a new love interest in Salt Lake City while hitting up a, a PPL, the prepaid legal seminar. But instead, she makes a pit stop in Mesa to see Travis. And by 5.30 p.m. on June 4th, Travis is dead. So on July 9, 2008, Jody is indicted by a grand jury in Maricopa County, Arizona, for the first degree murder of Travis. She's arrested at her home six days later and extradited to Arizona on September 5th. She pleads not guilty on September 11th. And as we know, it was during this time that she provided several different accounts about her involvement in Travis's death. But to recap, so she first tells police she has not been in Mesa, was not there on the day of the murder, uh, and had last seen Alexander in March 2008 into that March, 2008, what in March, 2008. So that's, <laughs> I love it. 2008, baby. <laughs> so that's the first story. Story number two is that two intruders, uh, dressed like ninjas break into Travis's home, murdering him and attacking her two turtles, turtle ninjas, turtles in a half shell. Two years after this, this, uh, her arrest, we get story number three, which is that she killed Travis in self-defense claiming that she had been a, vi- a victim of domestic violence. And this is where we stand when the trials finally starts in January of 2013. So there are a number of really interesting witnesses that give testimony about the nature of Jody and Travis's relationship, most of which we've gone over. Um, the man Jody had traveled to see in Salt Lake City testified that the two had been romantic when she visited, as well as testifying that she had cuts on her hands that she said she got from bartending. So this is also 
we have to TO essentially what she, what that means is she murdered this dude and then went and had sex with some other guy. I don't believe there was sex. There was just lots of heavy petting and making out. Oh, okay. But he said she seemed totally normal. But that's like, I can't, I can't imagine murdering someone. No, it's weird. Yeah. Yeah. So the medical examiner testifies to the extent of Travis's injuries, which were considerable. He'd been shot just above his brow on the right side, stabbed deeply 27 times, and his throat had been slit from ear to ear. It was a really gory, brutal death. And he'd been shot with a 25 caliber gun, which coincidentally was the same caliber of gun that had been stolen from Jody's grandparents the week before Travis's death. Did I mention she lived with her grandparents? This is just like, it's so stupid. It's farcical. Yeah. Give, give one fucking fuck <laughs> about how you're going to go about this. You know? So the, like what? It, I, I just, it, the plan had holes. I'll give you that. So the big deal in the Jody Arias trial was whether or not she's going to testify because technically she doesn't have to, it's not required, but she is claiming self-defense and the prosecution did a bang up job job of depicting her as a crazy woman who was obsessed with Travis, which honestly, I think is at least partly fair. She was, she was definitely, she was definitely infatuated. So it kind of felt like a foregone conclusion that she would testify, but it did create a stir when it was announced that she would take the stand. And when she did, she told a harrowing story. She makes claims that Travis had abused her throughout their relationship from sexual abuse to mental abuse uh, to emotional abuse. There are definitely texts and emails that show evidence of possible mental abuse. And the jury foreman confirmed that the jury did recognize this evidence as fact. So Jody claims that their sexual relationship was abusive, mostly because Travis was focused on sodomy because he thought, oh, I love this as a Mormon, that rear entry was a okay with God. And while Jody admits that she didn't exactly stop him, she wasn't excited about it. And she expressed that she didn't want to. We have to talk about soaking. Do we have to talk about <laughs> soaking? Oh, we motherfucking no. 100% have to talk about soaking right now. For all of you oh. who don't know, soaking is a mormo act of, of sexual pleasure where I mean, I don't think, I think it's, I think it's contained to Mormons. I could be wrong, but I, I, it at least originated at BYU. And it's essentially where a guy inserts his peen into a lady's vajay and quote unquote soaks it there. And then they're on a bunk bed. And then a third Mormo gets on top of the bunk bed and starts shaking it so that it's it's not great. (laughs) So that it's not great. So, so that technically they're not having sex. They're, they're soaking, but they are experiencing the, some of, I mean, to me, that just sounds frustrating as fuck. Like just do it at that point. You know, it's also sex. So <laughs> you're not, I don't, I don't get it. And also, by the way, if someone's doing you in the bum, that is sex as well. It's so- called anal sex. And then there's oral sex. It's all sex. It's sex. How about you just do sex and then stop feeling, you know, like, how about, how about we remove the stigma around sex and how shameful it is, you know, like, just so you know, God doesn't give a fuck. And uh, if God does give a fuck, um, God's kind of a dick. I don't know if you've noticed, but there is so much going on in the world that if God's out here, like taking notes of people who are having premarital sex, then like, uh, God's an asshole and (laughs) I don't want anything to do with that shit. So find somebody else. 
we yeah. say what God is anyway. Okay. Sorry. We're so mad. <laughs> Keep going. So she also <laughs> testified that her relationship with Travis had become increasingly physically and emotionally abusive. And that Travis had shaken her while saying, I'm fucking sick of you and began screaming at her before he quote body slammed me on the floor at the foot of his bed and taunted her saying, don't act mm. like that hurts before he called her a quote bitch and kicked her in the ribs. She said that, quote, he want, went to kick me again and I put my hand out and then she holds up her left hand in the courtroom showing that her ring finger is permanently crooked. So there's no other tangible evidence of this abuse, but that honestly doesn't mean much. We know that women don't report and we know about Jody that she didn't confine in her friends or family. So maybe it's not so strange that she didn't tell anyone. We'll see. So a phone sex tape was played in court that Jody had recorded without Travis's knowledge, apparently hoping to use it to embarrass him. And she had done, had she done that, she would have been successful because in that recording, he says, and I quote, you sound like a 12 year old girl having her first orgasm. It's so hot. No, 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 no. I honestly oh, think no. the Mormon God would be way more pissed about that. I'm just putting that out there. So Jody also testifies that Travis secretly harbored pedophilic desires for both male and female children and that she tried to help him with these urges. Forensic experts testify that an examination of Travis's computer finds no evidence of pornographic material, but there are published reports of Travis watching porn on his computer and he visited a proxy server, which covers up your IP address while you're on the internet. So, you know, anything is possible. Um, there are a lot of problematic texts between Jody and Travis, and he, he did say some troubling things to her, including, you are the ultimate slut in bed. You will feel like you are being raped and enjoy every minute of it. And you'll rejoice in being a whore, having animalistic sex with me and pleasing me in any way I desire. He also memorably referred to her as a three-hole wonder. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and one thing I want to point out about that, like, first of all, if you're into dirty texts and like, dirty talk, whatever, like hot, I guess, do your thing. Like, I don't know. I wouldn't, I don't think rape is hot, but I know that there are some people who like, that's their thing and it's consensual and it's like, whatever. Okay, great. But I think one thing that's important about this is that he was acting one way with his Mormon uh, cohorts and a very different way behind closed doors. And he was painting her as, as this psycho, which like, I, you know, she's definitely problematic in a very big way, but he was painting this, um, angel devil scenario where he was this angelic Mormon guy when actually what was happening was, well, I, I think it's even worse than that. I think that he was saying that she was the one doing this to him. And that's the way his friends expressed it. That like, literally one of his buddies got on one of these documentaries and was like, he was really excited about her moving because it would enable him to live a clean, pure life, that it was impossible for him to live a clean Mormon right. life when this woman is crawling into his bed. And I'm like, actually, my dude, he had every opportunity to be like, you know what, this behavior isn't acceptable and you need to leave. That's not what he did. So I'm not saying right. that Jody Arias is not problematic. She definitely is. I'm just saying that at best, he aided and abetted that and got what he wanted out of it. And then when he was yeah. like, well, I definitely want you to crawl into my bed and fuck me, but then I want you to go away so that I can date other people. And like, you are the reason that I am unclean. No, no. Right. No, sir. Take some fucking responsibility, sir. Travis's buddies can talk all they want about Travis being clean and pure, but the text messages do not lie, my friend. So then she tells the story of the day that he died. 
she claims that she drove to see Travis, got in about 3 a.m. They go to sleep. And when they wake up in the early afternoon, they begin to have sexy time and they take those really cringeworthy pictures. They move the sexy time into the shower where the cringe pics continue. And then Jody claims everything changes when she accidentally drops his camera. She says that it's then that Travis transformed from sexy and flirty to ragey and angry. In her version of this, he tells her even a five-year-old handles a camera better than she does. And then he body slams her onto the bathroom floor. She takes off, runs to the closet, remembers that he keeps a gun in there, which she pulls out and threatens him with. According to her, he did not back down, instead saying he's going to kill her. And then he lunges at her, which causes her to maybe accidentally shoot. Wait. So she's saying that it's his gun, but we know that it's the stolen gun. We don't know. We don't know. The gun was not found. But don't we know? We know, but we know it's a 25 caliber gun. Okay. Okay. So that's kind of where her account ends because she claims she can't remember anything that happened after that. And Juan Martinez, the prosecutor, fucking grills her about this because some of what she said just doesn't make a lot of sense. So remember, she said that she shot him first, but the medical examiner testifies that shooting him first would have incapacitated him and that anything after that would have been overkill. She can't really explain why she continued to stab him if the gunshot had essentially gone through his brain and killed him. We also, and we have no idea. We don't know where the gun went. We don't know where the gun came from. We don't know how a gun ended up in the bedroom. We have no idea. She can't remember. Hmm. So her lawyer, Kurt Nurmi, which sounds so much like Bert and Ernie that I can't stand it, <laughs> asserted that she had lost control of herself because she was desperately afraid of Travis, knowing that he had attacked her and threatened to kill her before. And she just entered this fugue state where she acted out of desperation and pent up frustration at being kicked around by this dude who was gaslighting the fuck out of her. Juan Martinez comes in for the kill and claims that this is a premeditated murder, that she had stolen and used her grandparents' gun, and showed evidence that she had purchased a gas can the day before the murder, asserting that she had used it to get herself to Mesa without using a gas station so there wouldn't be a record of her trip through receipts, which is pretty captivating evidence. And that's why on May 8th, 2013, five years after the actual crime, Jody Arias was convicted of Travis Alexander's murder in the first degree. And then shit just got weirder. So Jody does this interview literally minutes after con- her conviction, claiming that she's in shock about being found guilty of first degree murder. And then she claims she wants the death penalty because she viewed, she viewed death as the ultimate freedom and she just wanted to be free. The way Arizona works, the prosecutor has two chances in a death penalty case to plead his case. And both times in this case, it came up with a hung jury. In the second trial, it was 11 to one. So Miss Arias just barely avoided a death sentence. And this should be the end of the story, but the end, the weird never stops in this case. And there are some updates. So her lawyer, Kurt Nurmi, had a near-death experience following representing Jody Arias. And he wrote a tell-all about Jody that got him disbarred, (laughs) which honestly he seems fine with. He said that this case basically broke him. And Juan Martinez was disbarred for leaking a jury name in the Jody Arias case to a blogger he was fucking. Oh my God. Good stuff. (laughs) So Jody, for her part, has adjusted pretty well to prison life and reportedly won an American Idol style contest while incarcerated, (laughs) proving that a leopard really does not change its spots. So um, she has a website, Jody Arias is Innocent, uh, which you can go on and read some really unhinged posts. Wow. Should you find yourself desiring of something to do late at night? Uh, I did. And uh, I laughed a lot. So <laughs> 
uh, highly recommend. Um, and there are some great documentaries about this. I mean, there's a lot of news articles about this, but the documentaries are pretty good. Um, I think they're most of the good ones actually are on discovery plus, Oh. Uh, and there's one on Discovery Plus. I think it's called Jody Arias Dirty Little Secret. And it kind of explains it from Jody's point of view, more in the mm-hmm. sense that, like, um, it was, and, you know, and I'm not excusing what she did. No, it's not good. But it does talk about if if you remember all the coverage about this, this was pre Me Too. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, femme fatale kills her boyfriend, um, you know, obsessed lover, right. uh, attacks Mormon man. I mean, it was all about how Jody was crazy and obsessed. But this case goes into the text messages he sent her and the fact that, like, after they broke up, he would text her furiously if he thought she was flirting with someone else mm-hmm. and how he continued to take trips with her and like how he pressured her she claims he pressured her into kinds of sex she didn't want to have and then thought she was dirty because of it. You know, I mean, right. I'm just saying, I, you know, Travis Alexander did not deserve what happened to him. No one is saying that I am saying that when patriarchy takes a hold and people are the issues, mental issues, bad things can happen. Bad things can happen. I mean, this whole thing could have been avoided if they were like, Oh, you're having premarital sex. It's actually not a problem. Okay. all right well then you know this is not a big deal i'm not saying it would have worked out between them but i am saying that like the whole like you're a dirty whore Mm -hmm. and i need to have this weird sex because i'm turned on by the fact that it's not allowed like a lot of that could have been avoided yeah well i mean i think that's a big problem with the culture of the patriarchy is the way that like this um pattern this is not new the way that like men want, and this is, you know, I'm being heteronormative right now, but men want to have sex, but then they have all this shame around it because of religion, which religion and the patriarchy are interchangeable. And then they project that onto it. I mean, this is, this is the original sin. This is Eve in the fucking garden. Yeah. The whole thing around women are the temptation and they, they are evil. It's not new and it plays out all the time. And this is just another example of it. Well, and I think it's like this, this, I don't want to say this poor girl. No. I mean, I think that she very clearly had mental issues that hadn't been addressed. Yeah. Um, and our, I think her parents were ill-equipped. Like I saw interviews with them and it's not that they're bad people. I just think that they had no idea the kind of mental issues that their daughter was dealing with. Right. And because they violated her trust in a way that she found so profound at such a young age, she never gave them a chance to find out. Also, and- did you, did you say that she was officially diagnosed with borderline personality? No, I don't think she's officially been diagnosed with anything, okay. but, um, or if she has, it's not something that's been released to the public, but there were psych, uh, psychiatrists that got on the stand that talked about what they think that she had. And one of them was borderline personality. Got it. Yeah. But that was from his side. That was a lo- the a psychiatrist on his side. Uh, Her side was saying she had PTSD and trauma. Okay. Right. Of course. Okay. It can be both bitch. Yeah. We can have all the things. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you can have it all ladies. We can really have it all. <laughs> PTSD <laughs> mental illness. Yes. It too can be yours. Okay. <laughs> I took one look at this chart and I was like, Wow. Like, wow. Uh, what a difficult journey. Um, she has better you than me. (laughs) God, I remember when I first started reading astrology, of course I was reading my own chart and I was like, boo this, boo that. And then I look at these, uh, 
now that we've we're doing this podcast yeah. I'm looking yeah. at these charts and I'm like okay thank you <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much okay <laughs> She has like six major configurations in her chart and the way that they interconnect is to put it plainly a fucking bummer. So here we go. Jody's moon is conjunct her Venus and Gemini and they're opposing Neptune in the eighth house. I could literally just stop here and this would explain pretty much everything, but alas, there's so much more. I'll start with this. Your moon represents your emotional landscape, your feelings, right? And it's teaming up with Venus, the planet that oversees relationships. Now, this is such a trip because having just your moon or just Venus and Gemini would create a very chill vibe. But if you team those two up, moon and Venus, now you have someone who has very strong feelings, moon, about her relationships, Venus. There is no chill to be had. And because we're in Gemini and Gemini's shadow is duplicity. This is someone who might lie about those feelings, who might seem one way in a relationship when actually they're another way, or maybe who says one thing and does another, or who says, Hey, I actually like being called a whore and a slut, but actually they're fuming about it on the inside. Yeah. Does not like that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Side note, just uh, to, to piggyback off that. So I don't know if you were with me when I watched the part where she was like pretending to have, I'm she was having the orgasm on that, that thing. And he was like, you sound like a 12 year and every woman in that room. Okay. So, you know, she's faking it, right? Like that's, it couldn't have been more obvious that she was faking that orgasm. And I'm just like, my dude. (laughs) Well, and that's what I'm talking about. It's that it's like, she wants that connection so bad because the moon conjunct Venus really wants a relationship, but the, because of the Gemini duplicity, it's like, she's kind of willing to lie to get it. Right. So, well, she said it like, cause he was, he would tell her all of these, he, he'd had this, like, I had this fantasy where I tie you to a tree while you're dressed in a red riding hood outfit. And then I sodomize you from behind. And what she said to that was, uh, that is so, um, debasing. That is so debasing. I love it. And later she was like, well, I didn't love it, but I just didn't want him to feel bad. Cause he had Like I was just trying to make him feel better. He thrived on compliments. And I'm like, oh, girl, girl, let's take a moment for how many of us have been in that fucking position. You know, we've all done that. That was exactly my thought. Who hasn't done that? Who hasn't been like, okay, I actually am not super comfortable with this, but I guess because you seem to. Oh, but you seem to really like putting your dick in my butt. So I guess I'll just sit. I'll just sit here and then go cry in the bathroom. (laughs) Tell me more about how you like to debase me and I'll pretend it's hot. Yeah. Oh and I'll, I'll pretend it's cute when you say I sound like a 12 year old. Ew. Honestly, the, the reddest of red flags. Yeah. I don't, I mean, me in that moment been like, okay, well, my hairdryer is going off. I have to, uh, <laughs> I have to iron my toothbrush. Excuse me. <laughs> Seriously. For fuck's my sake. dog is meowing. Something must be wrong. <laughs> yeah. Okay. For real. Okay. So we're in Gemini. We've got Venus conjunct the moon. And that energy is on steroids because this conjunction is being opposed by Neptune in the eighth house, which is the house that Scorpio oversees, right? It's the house of death, secrets, sexuality, abuse, revenge, obsession. Okay. That's the eighth house. All the good stuff. All, All that stuff. And the dark side of Neptune is lying, faking it, 
and addiction. More specifically with Neptune, it's about escaping reality, right? That's the dark side of Neptune. And the way that Neptune might do that could look like addictions, right? Like maybe pretending things are different than they are, which would be lying to other people or lying to yourself. Like maybe moving to your recently ex-boyfriend's town because everything's going to be okay. (laughs) It's going to work out. No, bitch. That's delusional. Yeah. Or like even putting on a facade, like see how beautiful and normal and Mormon I am when actually it's a fucking mirage and she's losing it underneath. Right. She's like barely holding on. Yeah. So put it together. And what do you got? Someone who has no chill in relationships, someone who masks or is duplicitous about the strong feelings that they have in relationships, someone who gets in relationships that involve addiction and sexual taboos, sex addiction, maybe like maybe someone who lies about all those things or puts on a front of innocence or naivete to distract from the sexual taboos. Right. And lastly, because we have Venus opposed by Neptune and Scorpio, someone who experiences a death in a relationship, Scorpio oversees death Mm -hmm. and then maybe lies about it because Neptune. Okay. Also, but like badly, is there anything that explains why she lied so fucking badly? Like, come on, Uh, girl, (laughs) like you're a Gemini. You should, I mean, you've got a lot of Gemini energy. You should be better at this. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes it's convincing. Sometimes it's not. Actually, that's a great question. I should look into like, if I can find out if, you know, why are you, why are you so bad at this? Because I bet it has to do, well, we're going to talk about her mercury, but her, unfortunately her mercury wasn't all up in this thing. Otherwise she probably would have been a lot better at this. Okay. Let's talk about her butterfly configuration. Here's how a butterfly happens. You'll have a point that's square to a second point. Then you have a third point that's in the house. It's right next to the second point at around the same degree. And that point is squared to a fourth point. Okay. So it ends up looking like wings because the first point trines the third point, the fourth point trines the second. Anyway, that those are details in case anyone cares. But in terms of the effect of this configuration, people with butterflies, it sort of indicates a need to be more understanding of others. Like they need to accept that people are the way that they are without trying to change them. Right. Hmm. their struggle is that they want someone to be a certain way and the person's just not that way. So let's look at the planets that Jody has here. She's got Chiron in Taurus conjunct her ascending. And those two are square to her North node in Leo. And then right next door to her North node in Leo, she has Saturn in Virgo. And then Saturn is square to her Neptune in the eighth house that we just talked about. So First, Chiron conjunct ascending. What a bummer. (laughs) I was just going to say, boo, 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 boo. But let me start with this because actually that could be really cool. But unless you're going to therapy or getting help in some way to really address your wounds and heal and integrate them, and I don't mean posting funny trauma memes, but like actually getting vulnerable with a therapist, unless you're doing that work, Chiron is always going to be a fucking bummer in your life. That's, that's just the rule of Chiron because Chiron oversees our deepest wounds and our healing journeys, right? So if you're not healing, 
you're not on the healing journey, then it's just about the wound. Chiron is just about the wound. So especially that's true when Chiron's conjunct your mother effing ascendant. Chiron, again, represents our deepest wounds and the ascending represents how others see us, our public image. So when they're conjunct, meaning right on top or right next to each other, you have a person who can't separate their public image from their wound. When people look at that person, that wound is what they see or, or that person becomes seen in the public eye because of the wound. Ding, ding, ding. We have a winner. Yeah. I mean, it's just so obvious. And what's interesting about that in Jody's case is that her Chiron's in Taurus, which is the wound of loss. So this loss is what she's associated with by the public, or it's a loss that causes her to be seen by the public. Okay. That's our first point in the butterfly. That's our first bummer. Yeah. These are all bummers. So many bummers. That point is square to her North node in Leo in the fourth house, which is the house of home and family. Our North node is the direction our want, our soul wants to go in this lifetime. You know, what it wants, what it wants to learn during this time on earth and Leo, you know, Leo wants attention. It wants power. It wants recognition. So this tells me that starting in her family of origin, cause we're in the fourth house, starting at home when she was a child, a deep need for power and recognition was implemented. Another thing about the shadow of Leo is just a lack of maturity, right? Leo and Aries are the two most childlike signs. And the shadow of that is immaturity, tantrums, taking your feelings out on others. So now we have a deep need for power and attention that started in childhood. We have, you know, kind of just a general immaturity, And that's feeding this wound of loss that's directly associated with how the public sees this person. Okay. That's the first square in the butterfly. The second square starts with a point we've already talked about Neptune in the eighth house. So lies, death, revenge, abuse, sexual taboos, and it's square to Saturn in Virgo in the fifth house. And this is so fucking crucial. The fifth house is the house of pleasure pursuits, which can embody several different things. But one of the main things that it embodies is romance and sexual affairs. Sometimes people call it the house of true love where your passion lies, which can be very cool, right? But sadly, the motto of Saturn is no. (laughs) As a Capricorn, I validate this. Yeah. No, it's a full sentence, right? Saturn is about boundaries and walls versus Jupiter, for example, whose motto is like, Fuck yeah, you know, like no matter what, what the scenario is, Jupiter's down. And no matter what the scenario is, Saturn's like, no, I hate it. Absolutely you know? not. Hate it. No, moving on next. <laughs> yeah. Saturn says no first and then thinks about it. Whereas Jupiter says yes first and then probably doesn't think about it. Just keep saying yes. <laughs> As a Sagittarius, I know this is true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when I see Saturn here in the fifth house, This points to a no in a romantic, sexually charged, passionate relationship. And that no, because of the square to Neptune leads to a death. That's the eighth house and a whole lot of lying. That's Neptune. Oh, look, the whole story planned out. Yeah, exactly. Altogether, what we have here is a need for attention that started in childhood, right? Like not getting those needs met in childhood a no in a romantic relationship, 
a lying in connection to a death and a wound of loss that becomes inseparable from Jody's identity in the public eye. And this can be attributed in part when we zoom out, remember we're with, we're working with a butterfly. It can be attributed in part to Jody's inability to accept people for where they are, because that's the tough lesson of the butterfly. Mm. So for example, being like, this dude is kind of a perv and is using me for sex and is calling me a slut and I don't like it. And actually what I really want is love. And instead he's telling me I'm a whore and a bitch. I think I'll stop fucking him and move on her inability to just accept that this guy was using her pulled all of those points in her chart into this shitstorm. Okay. There's another configuration. So this is one that's not documented, but it's very clear in her chart and it's related to a different configuration. So it's created by a quincunx at the top, which I'll get into in a second. We've seen one of those before. We've talked about it because we have to talk about it with a yod. So it's a quincunx at the top, two sextals that kind of fall down from those points, and then a square on the other side. It's very similar to something we've seen before called a trapeze. It's a very similar shape, but it's more difficult because it's made up mostly of difficult aspects. Because the reason for that is this shape creates two quincunxes going diagonally through the middle of it. So what we end up having is three quincunxes, one square and two sextals and quincunxes suck, right? So that's four shitty things and then two good things. But the, the sextiles, which we generally like, right, basically serve to enable the other difficult aspects and kind of help them along. Oh, good. Just what we wanted. Well, and that's the thing about a sextile is it's about potential. So it's basically unlocking the potential of the rest of these aspects. Okay. So let's talk about a quincunx. A quincunx is 150 degrees of separation between two points. And it's definitely a difficult aspect because it connects two signs that don't really have anything in common and don't mix well. In Jody's case, The first point she has in this configuration is Chiron conjunct her ascending in Taurus, which we've already talked about. That conjunction is quincunx Neptune in the eighth house, which we've also talked about. Okay. So we're starting with Chiron in Taurus, which is the wound of loss. Let's unpack that wound a little bit. The wound of loss can obviously be a death, right? hundred percent, but it can also be a fear of losing people of losing affection, Mm a fear of abandonment, essentially. So we have that wound in the first house. It's quincunx Neptune in the eighth house. This is creating a jarring, difficult relationship between this wound of loss and abandonment and sexuality, secrets, lying, addiction, revenge. So how might that look? Well, a person might fear abandonment to the point of becoming addicted to someone They might experience such an intense loss of affection in their childhood that they allow themselves to uh, be taken advantage of by a sex, by a sex addict, you know, or Mm -hmm. they themselves might become addicted to sex as a way to sort of like, feel like they have connection in some way. Um, It's also someone who could kill someone, right? Evidently. (laughs) Because again, eighth house is death and that's coming from that wound of abandonment. And this one is especially probable, this death one, because 
Chiron is also quincunx, right? Because we have a diagonal quincunx in this to Pluto in this configuration. Oh. oh no. Oh no. Yeah. Pluto fucking in it. Okay. And it's a very tight aspect. Chiron's at 17 degrees of Taurus and Pluto's at 18 degrees of Libra. So it's only one degree off. Very strong. As we know, Pluto oversees the shadow, taboo desires, abuse, death, obsessions, uh, revenge, right? It's, it's the planet that oversees Scorpio. So this all makes sense with the sex addiction stuff and the way he spoke to her, calling her a slut and a whore, a three hole under. Right. Yeah. Boo. Mm. This little red riding hood fantasy. Ugh, get okay. out of here with that. I mean, whatever. Cool. If it's cool with you, but if it's not, it's just fucking, it just, yeah, it feels very debasing. And also I think it makes a lot of sense when you think about the stalking accusations against her, right? Because Pluto gets obsessed as fuck. Yeah. As a reminder, Pluto's the Roman god of the underworld. So when we see an aspect with Pluto in these cases, we know death is a possibility too. But so far, I'm looking at this and none of it's telling me definitively why this death took place. Is it self-defense? Is it premeditated murder? Right. Well, here's a piece that does give me some information. The final point in this configuration is Mercury conjunct the sun and it's quincunx Neptune and it's square to Pluto. This is now the third or fourth time we've seen Mercury conjunct the sun. We definitely saw it with Ghislaine Maxwell and we saw it also with Warren Jeffs. When this aspect is healthy, it's someone who speaks their mind, right? But when it's unhealthy, like when it has all these squares and quincunxes coming at it, right? It's about someone who just thinks about themselves. It's, it's narcissism essentially, or the other part of it is really obsessing over how they, how they'll look to others because the sun oversees the public image, someone really concerned with their mugshot and whether or not they can go clean up so they can have a pretty mugshot, for example. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So in this difficult configuration, that's mostly quincunxes. We've got a wound around loss and or fear of abandonment. That's Chiron. We've got lies and addiction, pretending things are okay. That's Neptune. Neptune's in the eighth house of sex, death, revenge, secrets. We've got Pluto who oversees obsessions, revenge, you know, same shit, abuse, death. And then we've got the narcissism of sun conjunct Mercury, someone who thinks about themselves first and foremost. So fear of abandonment narcissism, obsession, revenge, and death. And they're all in a big fight with each other in this configuration. She has another configuration that also gives me information about why this death took place. She has what's called a boat in her chart. And a boat is really good for successfully completing a task or a plan. It's got four points and it's made of an opposition, right? So two points in the opposition. And those points are connected from end to end with three sextals that make the whole thing look like a boat. So what are the points in the boat? Because they'll help us understand the plan that Jody successfully enacted. Those four points are Chiron and Taurus in the first house, the sun conjunct Mercury in the third house, Saturn in the fifth house and Uranus in Scorpio in the seventh house. Okay. This is fucking huge. We've talked about Chiron and Taurus. We know that's the wound of loss, maybe a loss of life and a fear of abandonment. 
We've talked about the sun conjunct Mercury that points to narcissism. We've talked about Saturn in the fifth house. That's a no or a boundary in a romantic sexual relationship. But the one we haven't talked about is Uranus in Scorpio in the seventh house. This one's just so fucking on the nose. Uranus is unstable, unpredictable, and erratic. The seventh house is the house of partners, marriage, boyfriends. It's the spouse house. And Scorpio, where Uranus is, oversees obsessions, secrets, revenge, death. So I see a wound around abandonment, a narcissistic tendency, a no that happens in a relationship, and the death of a partner, a spouse, a boyfriend. This is the plan that was successfully enacted. But unfortunately, because she has Uranus as like part of this plan, Uranus isn't like a plan. Like if she had had Saturn there, I think it would have worked better because Saturn is a planner, you know? Mm, Yeah. But Uranus is just erratic. It just makes some crazy ass decision. Doesn't fucking think about it. And that's why, that's why this is like, that's why she left a camera there with pictures of her naked ass and a palm print and blood. And when they were like, there's a palm print of your blood. She's like, weird. I don't know how that would happen. And they're like, well, we do. It's (laughs) because you left it there after you (laughs) killed him. And she was like, that never happened. And they're like, okay, so you're arrested. She was like, that couldn't possibly have happened because I was MIA for 24 hours because I was sleeping in my car. on a road trip. She's like, I'm a heavy sleeper and I'm not above sleeping in my car. So I was just napping and I don't understand why that's confusing for anyone. Right. So let's move on to the grand cross that she has. And this, and this, at this point, I'm just like, Oh Jesus girl. Like, look, some people are just dealt a tough hand and Jody's one of them because having one of these would be intense, but all of these configurations, like the fuck. Okay. So she has a grand cross which is made up of four points that are each separated by 90 degrees, which also means it's got two sets of oppositions. So it just looks like a big square in the chart. For Jody, one set of these oppositions is North node opposite South node, which is normal. We all have that, no big deal. But directly square to those points is the second opposition, which is Chiron in Taurus opposite Uranus in Scorpio. Oh no. Yes. And essentially what this boils down to is that she has both Chiron and Uranus squaring her nodes. And by the way, I also have Chiron square the nodes. So let, let me take this moment to say Chiron is about our wounds, but again, it's also about whether or not we choose a healing journey that's on us. Are we doing the work? Are we going to therapy or are we making our wounds someone else's problem? Are we taking our wounds out on others? That's the big question that comes up when Chiron, I think it's fair to say that she, she made her wounds. Someone else, someone else's fucking problem. Yeah. 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 hundred percent. Yeah. So let's go over this. The nodes are all about your karma and your fate. So when Chiron is squaring them, the question around how you're choosing to work with your pain is massive in determining the direction your life will go in this lifetime. If you see this in your chart and you aren't choosing healing, you are creating some fucked up karmic circumstances for yourself. So that's Chiron square the nodes, but it's not just about that square because we're in an opposition and the point opposite Chiron is what tells us more information about what will happen if we don't choose healing for Jody. That point is Uranus in Scorpio in the house of partners. 
Uranus is unstable, erratic, unpredictable. It's bringing that energy to the Scorpio realm, which is now in its shadow. We were talking about death, sex, secrets, revenge in the seventh house of partners, AKA boyfriends. So in other words, the chart is telling us if this person doesn't choose a healing journey, it will deeply affect her fate in this lifetime and the direction her life goes and the direction it will go is something erratic will happen in the areas of sex and death, specifically with a partner of some kind. One other thing I'll say about this grand cross, like we talked about, she has the North node in the fourth house. So I looked up more info about what that looks like when you're dealing with a grand cross. And this is what I found out. I'll just read it. Attempts to manage or direct people will lead you to feeling empty and frustrated in this lifetime. When you organize your affairs and address your own emotional problems, that's when the universe will support you. Of course, that's kind of a no shit statement because anytime you address your own emotional problems, the universe will support you regardless. But I think the key here is that trying to direct or force someone will just leave you feeling empty and angry. Whereas some people are given that gift of influence where they can like direct people, you know, cult leaders, for example, but with the North node in the fourth house, you just don't have that. And it's just going to enrage you at some point. And for Jody, I think what happened was her trying to force Duder to love her or to relate to her differently or to see her differently than he did, you know, AKA like a person and not like a blow up doll just left her feeling used and enraged. But it, it was like, she couldn't accept that that's just where he was and she wasn't working on herself. So that rage built and turned on him and ended in this revenge. And that's what I see her with, with this astrology. And in this case, that feeling is magnetized because we've got Uranus and Scorpio. And one thing you have to remember about the shadow of Scorpio is that it just so deeply wants revenge. That's, that's the less evolved side of Scorpio. Cause remember Scorpio is the most complex sign in the Zodiac. You can have really low vibe Scorp or really high vibe Scorp, but that low vibe Scorp wants to fuck you up. So with unpredictable erratic ass Uranus in Scorpio, squaring the nodes with the North node in the fourth house, that's a recipe for disaster. And we're getting close to the end here, but we're not done because as if all that shit wasn't enough, Jody has a motherfucking boomerang in her chart, which is basically a yod, but stronger. Oh, I don't even think we've seen this before. So we've talked about the yod before. It's also called the finger of God or the finger of fate. It points to a place of crisis in a person's life where they have to make a huge decision. The yod is made of three points. There's the central point, which is the place in the person's life where they'll really have to transform something through this crisis and through the decision that they make about the crisis. And the other two points are each quincunx, that central point. And they tell us about what was going on that fed into this crisis that sort of set the whole crisis up. So what it ends up looking like is a long skinny triangle. That's the yod. A boomerang is when you have a yod, but there's a fourth point that's opposing that central point of the yod. So it's basically right between the t- other two points, right in the center of the base of the triangle. A boomerang says, not only will you be presented with this crisis and have to make a decision, but there will also be a massive confrontation around it. You will not go silently into that good night. That shit will require that you really look at what you chose and you really think about it. 
So what are the points in Jody's boomerang at the base? She has Chiron and Taurus on one side and the sun Mercury conjunction on the other. So these are the things that led up to the crisis, that wound of loss slash fear of abandonment. And then that tendency toward narcissism. This is what sets the scene. And what is the crisis point? It's Neptune in Scorpio. So we've got lies, addiction, pretending that things are good when they're actually fucked. That's the Neptune shadow. And then of course, because we're in Scorpio death, this is the place where she will experience a crisis and have to make a big decision. And the fourth point, the point that's forcing the confrontation is Venus in Gemini relationships that are duplicitous, where you appear one way this minute or with this group of people, but then you show up a totally different way the next minute or with other people, or when you're alone with yourself, right? A mirror of that will be held up to her. And she'll have to not only look at the decision that she made around this death and the lies surrounding it, but also she'll have to really look at how she shows up in these relationships that people are going to force her to look at being one way, one minute and a different way. The next saying one thing, one minute and a different thing, the next, right. Telling a Ninja turtle story and then telling a self-defense story. It's going to force her to question who she really is. And that is the astrology of Jody Arias. I just want to throw on this pile that when she killed him, she was 27. Oh, she was in her Saturn return. She was in her Saturn returns. Uh, and that Saturn is in the fifth house. And that's that no, that's that no to love, no to this true love that you think you have. It's it's a no. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I looked that up because I was like, everything about this is telling me she was 27. <laughs> I looked that up and I was like, yep, yep, that checks out, man. And, and also just looking at this chart, it's so fucking crazy. It's just a, it's just a really crazy chart, but I'm, but here's like, I just want to give this as an example. So you have Chiron square your nodes. If you're really, um, really invested in healing. Right. And then you have Uranus on the other side in Scorpio, the way that I've talked about it, it makes it sound like this is absolutely what would happen. We've been over this so many times. It's not, you don't have to be a murderer, (laughs) but because I want to talk about the other way it could look, it could look like your life. You could become a therapist, right? Uranus is also the planet of breakthroughs. So you could actually, and, and Scorpio when it's high vibe is like, majorly transformational. So you could be having breakthroughs that create transformations in your partnerships, in your relationships, right? That's a different way that this could have looked. But again, you have to be invested in that Chiron energy going a specific way, going towards healing. See, yeah, that just doesn't make as good a podcast. Like here, let's talk about all the people <laughs> that have like really broken through and use their yacht for good. I don't know. I don't know. It's an okay podcast, but Hey, actually that's just your other podcast. <laughs> That's the trauma party. And actually it's a great podcast. So that's how to do it. It's more of an instructional thing, but that's that. That's what that is. Yeah. Shout out for the trauma party. Petrama party. Oh, I made a, I finally fucking made an Insta account for it. Yeah. You've been talking about it forever. Oh, I finally did it. Okay. But the, speaking of Uranus, the other thing I want to talk about is what just happened in Kansas <gasps> because that shit is in the stars. Okay. So if uh, you're unaware, 
Kansas just gave the right and the patriarchy and the Supreme Court a big fuck you. The fat middle finger. Yeah. When they basically voted that, no, they're going to keep their um, their state addendum. Refer- what is it? <laughs> is that the language? They're basically they're they're making it so that it is in their state constitution that abortion is legal. Mm-hmm. That's essentially what they did. It was a 60 40 split. So it was not, not close, close at not all. Close. Okay, so this happened yesterday. And yesterday for us was Tuesday. Monday, astrologers everywhere were freaking out because on Monday, a huge thing happened. What happened, Remy? I will tell you. The North Node, which controls our, I don't want to say controls, it oversees our collective destiny, went conjunct with not just Uranus, but also Mars. Uranus, the power of Uranus, it's, it's unpredictable. It's erratic. It wants change, right? On the one hand, on the other hand, it is freedom seeking. It's progressive and it dismantles the status quo. Okay. It dismantles convention. What's always been done. It's innovative. It wants something new. Okay. So then Mars got in on it. Mars was part of this conjunction too. Mars in its uh, power is decisive. It takes action. It's goal-oriented. It's ambitious. In its shadow, it's violent, right? So everyone was freaking out because all three of these were joined up and that could look like riots, right? Like uh, unstable, violent, and uh, the North Node, which is our destiny. So it could feel like a very violent shift in our destiny. That's the first possibility. So that's why everyone was freaking out. But I was not freaking out because on Tuesday, yesterday, Venus got in on it and Venus sent a trine to the whole fucking pod of planets. Venus was like, Hey, actually, I'm going to send you some really good energy. Venus oversees the feminine and it also oversees working together. It oversees the collect. It's not, it doesn't oversee the collective in the way that Uranus does. Cause Uranus is the planet of Aquarius, but Venus likes harmony and likes being like, you know what guys, like, let's, let's just work together and get her done in a group. It's why Venus likes community shit. Right. So when Venus sent that beam, when I looked at this, I was like, I think that actually this is going to be good. Whatever change is going to happen is going to be a good, like, we're going to like it. And that's what I wrote in my horoscopes, which by the way, I write horoscopes, uh, for dandelion chandelier and those came out. And that's what I said in my horoscope. I didn't foresee, I didn't even know that this Kansas thing was on the ballot. I didn't foresee this happening, but I did foresee like actually the changes that are happening and the disruption that's happening with Uranus is a really good one. We're going to like it. I was pleasantly surprised to find out that this is what the fucking deal was. The other thing that happened on Tuesday was the department of justice sued Idaho for their abortion ban. So basically Venus, the feminine was getting in on this disruptive dismantling uh, energy. And what this tells me is that we are headed towards a dismantling of this bullshit because Venus got in on it and was like, I'm part of this. Well, actually we won't be doing this today. Yeah, exactly. And Uranus is like power to the people, freedom, fuck, uh, fuck Saturn, fuck the patriarchy, fuck 
the status quo. So I just wanted to put that out there. I'm feeling really positive. I don't, I'm not saying that, oh, and so now everything is going to be easy and the patriarchy is going to disappear. What I'm saying is over time, I think we will see a shift away from these conservative abortion laws. God, girl, from your lips to God's ears, because I am, I don't often vote against Saturn energy. It, you know, sure. But I'm all for it in this particular case. Yeah. Saturn needs to shut the fuck up and go to bed like the old man he is. Right. We all have Saturn somewhere. We all have Uranus somewhere. You know, Saturn is really good for, for structure. We like Saturn for security, you know, but Uranus, when Uranus comes along, Uranus is like, I don't give a fuck about structure security. (laughs) I want change. I want freedom. I often sometimes think about the planets as like a party you know, like planets yes. and these things. It's like a yes. party. And then I feel like Pluto shut up, shows up and everybody's like, Oh God, that fucking guy, <laughs> you know? And then like maybe Chiron steps in. They're like, Oh my God, I wish they would just do it already. <laughs> just leave us all alone. <laughs> Chiron's like, I see beyond your joke. And I see that it's actually from your childhood trauma. And everyone's like, boo. <laughs> it's like, shut up. We're trying to get drunk. Jupiter's like, Chiron fucking ruins the party again. Yeah. All right. I love you. All right. Well, I love you too. 